everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne. Welcome to the ASCA Podcast. What's up, everybody? Joseph Coyne here. Thank you again for coming along to the ACA Podcast, Australian Strength Conditioning Association Podcast. Uh, today we have on a guy called Bob Alejo. Now, Bob is the Director of Sports Science at Powerlift, which is a manufacturing company in the United States, but he's look, he has a very storied history. He's been the Assistant Athletics Director and Director of Strength Conditioning at North Carolina State. Uh, prior to that, he's, he's worked as a strength conditioning coach or director of strength conditioning for the Oakland A's, the Major League Baseball team. He, he had two stints there in 2009 to 11, and also from 93 to 2001. That 93 to 2001 is really, really interesting because that was when, I, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but that was when uh, the Moneyball uh, era was, the, the book that was written by Michael Lewis, and then that got transformed into a movie starring Brad Pitt and, uh, and look, Bob was there at the coalface, living that living that era and living that uh, part of part of history. Um, he's also been involved at uh, not just at the North Carolina State University, but at some other colleges, including UC Santa Barbara and at UCLA. And UCLA, when he was there, was just a hotbed of talent. Um, you had uh, people there that still hold world records, for instance, including Mike Powell and Jackie Joyner Kersey and, and so on. But look, he was an absolute gentleman to interview. He's got some great, great stories from baseball, from the major leagues, and from that Moneyball era, including about Billy Bean, who, who was that main, uh, main act, main character in that in that Moneyball film. And we we get into all sorts of stuff. We get into how he programmed for pro sports, that sort of minimum effective dose, or even microdosing is the is the term that comes to mind when I think of what he was telling me about it. Uh, we also look at how he changed his approach from from coaching college kids and then having to work with uh, pros who who earn millions of dollars and uh, and uh, the different approach, the different psychology behind it. Um, we also talked about the differences between throwing and sprint and jump sports. He's had a lot of experience across both of those and and whether, whether there is even a difference in, in how he thinks about it. And uh, and one other thing we, we really touch on is the great benefits that strength and conditioning coaches, all coaches have, of cross-pollinization, getting to work with other sports, seeing what good legs are, seeing what good shoulders are, seeing what good uh, trunk spine function is in other sports, e.g. the shoulders of swimmers, uh, the, the legs of jumpers, the legs of sprinters, how, how, what do they do, how do they make them good, and then applying it to the sport you're working with. So, look, I think you're really going to love this. Uh, Make sure you get into it and, and listen to the full thing. And, and Bob will actually be out in November for the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association's conference in Sydney. So this will be a nice preface to that if you are coming to that as well. So without further ado, let's get stuck in. Okay, so ASA podcast time. Uh, Joseph Coyne here, and I am online with the one, the only Bob Alejo, all the way from uh, from the United States. Um, look, mate, Bob, thanks for thanks for having you on. I can't wait to do this, man. It's good we got together, and uh, I, I was excited to get your your email saying you wanted to do something like this. Was, I'm I'm so much looking forward to coming there in November that uh, this will whet my appetite a little bit in the meantime. Right on. You'll get a bit of uh, Aussie colloquialisms into you and uh, learn the gift of the gab, and then you'll be rocking and rolling by the time you get here. Um, Perfect. For, for the listeners, Bob is actually coming out 
to the ASEA conference in November. Um, this one's down in Sydney uh, for 2018, and he will be giving a keynote presentation. It'd be uh, highly, highly recommended that everyone gets along to it. Um, but Bob, mate, tell us about the start. Tell us about the origins of how you got into strength and conditioning or athletic performance. Um, why did it begin? Where did it begin? And uh, mate, give us give us some insight there. Wow. Well, you know, Joseph, there's 35 years to go go through, but I'll try to compact it the best I can. Fortunately, I haven't had a ton of jobs. I think I've only had four or five jobs. I'd have to go over that again. I had the A's twice. So at the same time, uh, you know, some 35 odd years ago, I was walking down the hallway and at my alma mater. I was coaching baseball at the time, a sport I played, you know, my whole life. And uh, one of my advisors, who was the track and field coach at the time, called me and said, hey, I, I want you to take a look at this. So he shows me what was then the National Strength Coaches Association, which is now the National Strength and Conditioning Association. He said, take a look at this right here. And on the cover, it was like, I'll never forget it. EJ Jr., who was a lineman, was doing a Nautilus pullover on the cover. And he said, you know, I know you're, you're probably, you know, kind of clawing your eyeballs out coaching high school kids because – you know, they're just probably not feeling it the way you are. But maybe this is something you like to do because you knew it. I had been a competitive lifter before. I liked lifting, training. My subjects in college were that way, so it was perfect. So I looked at it, and I never looked back since then. You know, so from there, really, you know, I kind of dabbled into it in town at a at a uh, hospital-based sports medicine center, training guys from my alma mater. So they were only you know, three years older than me, and I was training them then. But then the second part of this origin began when I went to go see the 49ers training camp uh, where Al Vermeil was coaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, long story short, I, I spent the day watching him coach, watching him work, listening to his methodologies and philosophies. It's only about a 90-minute, you know, almost two-hour drive back to where I was. And on the way back, I remember saying out loud to the guys in the car, you know, if I can feel like that guy does every single day, I'm going to do that the rest of, you know, the rest of my career. And that's when I really started going. And, you know, from there on, it just kind of went from, that was in the eighties In 84, I got my first job at UCLA. The next job was in pro baseball. Um, and I went back to college, uh, back to pro baseball, a couple of Olympic teams in between there. And then I ended up here uh, as a director of strength and conditioning at North Carolina state. Um, and then since I've now changed my role into the director of sports science for Powerlift, and I'm doing some writing, it's consulting right now, but uh, that's kind of uh, the Reader's Digest version, very condensed, you know. So in 35 years, like I said, I think I only had four or five jobs. And uh, as I also like to say, I, I have yet to have a regular job, and I don't really plan on having one. So I'm going to keep, I'm gonna keep banging away at this. Mate, 100%, 100%. I, uh, I always say any job where I don't have to wear a suit to work is a, is a good job. And um, that's it's strength and condition Fair enough. right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no doubt. Mate, so um, mate, let's talk about that, uh, the sort of collegiate um, stuff. Tell us about UCLA. Tell us about North Carolina. Um, I do believe you, you're also UC Santa, Santa Barbara. Barbara. UC Santa Barbara, yeah, 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 cool. Yep. Mate, tell us about the roles there and because – these are really similar for, like, say, Australian and New Zealand where you have the Institutes of Sports and England as well. We have the Institute of Sports where one, one S&C coach might have to deal with a number of different sports. Um, like you might have volleyball, you might have track right. field and swimming, 
all at the same time. Um, yeah, let, let's talk about that. Well, so in 1984, I, I was, uh, as you might guess, being in the profession as long as I have, I, I was kind of there in the beginning. And so at the same time, there was lots of avenues, you know, available to me and, and us in the profession at the time. So, you know, I became the first assistant strength coach in UCLA history in 1984, part-time the first year, the second year was full-time. And uh, we spent nine years there and it was an incredible nine years. You know, I was surrounded by not only the country's greatest athletes, um, but the world's greatest athletes. Cause you got to remember now in that group uh, in several instances, I had several soccer players that went on to great hall of fame careers in world cup and uh, Olympic U S Olympic team soccer. And of course, on in track and field, I had Mike Powell, who still holds the world record in a long jump. Jackie Joyner Kersey was on our track team. Her husband Bobby was the sprint coach of the women's team before. Of course, they weren't married quite yet. Um, and you know, so many other people from his crew. John Smith, probably you know, arguably the greatest sprint coach in male history, had all the best male sprinters. Art Benegas was a shot put coach. He's a legendary throws coach. And so, you know, it was just remarkable to be around those type of athletes. I say that underscoring it with, in, in those uh, 10 years, uh, we had won across the board 25 national championships. Still to date, it's almost a quarter of their championships. And, you know, that was 24 years ago. So uh, it was really a very fertile time for tremendous athletes coming through there. Uh, Troy Aikman, football. Uh, from uh, football greatness was there, uh, Reggie Miller in basketball. I mean, it just seems there wasn't a sport that was untouched by great talent. And so I, you know, Joseph, I really was learning as much from them as they were from me. Uh, and, you know, the respect that I had there, when I look back now, especially some of the things I've encountered uh, in throughout my career, of the things that happened there, I don't remember anything or anybody telling me anything about my training programs, like you shouldn't do that, or what about this? And these guys were, you know, some of the country's best coaches, many of them in the Hall and Coaching Hall of Fame collegiately. They just let me do my thing. And a lot of times doing my thing meant doing something for the first time, <laughs> seeing, you know, if what I was doing worked. So uh, it was a great experience. And of course, that atmosphere is so uplifting and youthful and exuberant, and, you know, everything around it is fantastic. And from there, I went to uh, later on, after a stint in pro baseball, I went to UC Santa Barbara, which was what we call here a mid-major university. So UCLA, North Carolina State, all the ones that you've heard of, Penn State, Florida State, Alabama, those are all uh, what they call power five schools, division one, the big hitters, the big time, the money makers. Then you, then you have a, another group down, which are Division One schools, still the same division, but they're called mid-majors. And most of them don't have football, and UC Santa Barbara was one of them. Um, and UC Santa Barbara is in what we call the UC system in California. And the UC system is, what I like to call it, is like the Ivy League of the West. That league is like, those schools are kind of like the Yale and Harvard and Penn of the West Coast. We have UC Santa Barbara, UCLA, UC Berkeley. Uh, UC Santa Cruz, UC were very, very bright, difficult schools to get into. Um, but I will say this, that during that time there, that was probably the four most rewarding years of my career. Um, now, it wasn't the mon 
the one with the most rewards, but it was the most rewarding, you know, internally to me um, because it was, it was a, a group that, that I probably wouldn't have been exposed to normally uh, that level of athlete. And the other hand, it was something that they probably wouldn't have been exposed to normally. Um, but I, I really got back to the roots of coaching and teaching and, and starting at ground level. I mean, there was, you know, unlike the power five schools, we would typically get some athletes that would come to the division one level had not never lifted weights or had been in any kind of regimented program or typically the bigger schools, they already have been right. You got to kind of go back and figure out, you know, the basics, how do the basics work? It was tremendous seeing these kids grow. It really was. Um, and then here at NC state, again, kind of a first, you know, we really never had a director of strength and conditioning over everything there. And so this was particularly interesting um, because I was at one point the only director of strength and conditioning that was over the entire athletic department, yet not over football. I was over men's basketball. Huge support from the administration there to get that thing rolling. And, uh, of course, basketball-wise, we had for the, you know, the, the brightest years that that school had ever seen over the past 25 years. Unfortunately, as it goes, you know, you're, you're, as they say, you're hired to be fired. So uh, we had a couple of unsuccessful years. Our coach um, was fired and my contract wasn't renewed. So as again, college sports is run by money and winning an achievement. So they, you know, they essentially needed to, to just take us all and put us in a pot and use that to get the next person back. Um, but, you know, then again, we started in what they call the director's cup here. So it's a ranking of all the sports with a certain amount of um, points assigned for doing well in your conference, doing well nationally. When I got there, we were ranked 86th in the 80s somewhere. When I left, we were close to the twenties. So I was pretty proud of the fact that my 15 staff members, we all played a part in every single team, helping them to raise up that many spots. So I, I'm particularly proud of that. I'm also proud of the fact that in five years that during one spread there, we had put out of our intern program, 20 interns full-time in the workforce. And so I was really proud to be able to, to put what I thought were really good coaches into situations where they could, you know, start earning a living and put to, uh, put pencil to paper in terms of, you know, what they went to school for and, and what they really were interested in. That's helping people get better. So the college situation was, has been really good to me. I mean, I enjoyed it. It was very contrasting, but also uh, helpful when I went into the pros. Um, and also with the Olympic, you know, the two Olympic teams I was on. So uh, really enjoyed working with all those sports. And, and you mentioned that earlier, like, you know, the way you have the Institute of Sports there working with so many sports across uh, the, the spectrum. There wasn't as many coaches back then when I started. So when I started at UCLA, there was two of us, basically two of us at every school in the country at the time, if you can believe that. So if you had 20 sports, then you were probably taking 10 of them, and the head strength coach was taking the other 10. And you were helping an old 20, but you'd be, you know. So I think really part of my development uh, in the ability to, to, to coach every sport came from the fact that I had already cross-pollinated my knowledge with so many other sports. In other words, when I got to pro baseball, by the time I got to pro baseball, I got to see the best shoulders in action in swimming, volleyball, tennis, right? I got to see what that was, and that contributed to my knowledge of handling pitchers in the throwing arm in baseball. Likewise, I got to see legs in basketball, tennis, soccer, 
you know, I, I saw the greatest track and field runners, not but a hundred yards from my front office every day. I could go out there and watch any number of people, including Flojo out there running. I mean, it was fantastic. So uh, there was a lot of things that kind of happened on the outside that you just can't, you can't plan for. And I don't know that you could ever do that again. In fact, I think coaches today are really missing out on the fact that they have four or five sports and they kind of concentrate in that area. They really don't get the virtue of learning what it's like out here with these other sports. Um, and I, and I strongly recommend that, you know, everybody's busy, right? I don't want to hear it. You don't want to hear it. Just do your job. What I am saying is this, when you have extra time, if, if track and field's not your sport or the women's tennis team, go help out. Go, go see what that's like. Learn that because you're going to start just acquiring this amount of knowledge that, that these days is going to be lost. Mm. Mate, that's, that's such a good point. That cross-polarization that you get when you work in like that college environment or that uh, institute environment where you, yep. you might have to take care of a swimmer, uh, then you've got to take care of a uh, long jumper, then you've got to take care of a, uh, a basketball team it's, um, or a volleyball team. Um, and you, you're so right. You learn and you watch how people look and how they move and like what good looks like in those sports, and, and you take principles from each. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. Right? No doubt. No doubt. Totally what a great tool. That. Yeah. Mate, that was really interesting. One, one, like those names you brought up too were just like uh, obviously the, those are world, world-renowned names. Um, one of them, um, actually, uh, I did a lot of work with a guy called Randy Huntington. Um, who oh, geez, uh, I, I didn't I, know that. I reached out to him just before we did this. I said, hey, I've got this guy, Bob Aleha, on the, on the podcast. Do you know him? And, oh, yeah, no, I've known him for ages. He's a great guy, blah, blah, blah. Um, so that's great for you. Yeah. Um, and he was obviously Powell's coach for the listeners that uh, sure. and uh, and was in and around that area. Um, mate, tell us about what the like how your sort of philosophy on those sports with those physical qualities like is there things that they share what do they share and then how do you how do you mix in the the non-shared qualities or how do you develop those non-shared qualities but is there a common ground in a lot of those sports and and what's your sort of philosophy there well let me just first say this I love talking about guys from uh you know that we've known together in MVO. Randy Huntington, here's a here's a small story about Randy Huntington. The Kaiser uh Soleus raise machine that they have developed was developed for Mike Powell. We had we had it in our weight room. It was the only one that was made at the time and it was developed for him by him with Randy Huntington. So he's the reason why that machine even exists. That's kind of cool, right? 100% first thing. Um so, you know, honestly, I would say this, uh, Joseph, that teams share way more commonalities in physiology and movement than they don't. In fact, what I say is I, I don't really believe in sports-specific training in as much as you go into the weight room, you don't see anything that looks like sport in there unless you see somebody weightlifting and you say, oh, that's weightlifting, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't see anything that looks like swinging a bat or swimming or you know, head in a soccer ball or anything. You don't see any of that. But what you do see that's inherent is, you know, volleyball, soccer, tennis, swimming, diving. You see some vertical components that are in, mixed in the training. You see the legs being developed there, right? Um, with wrestling, uh, rugby, uh, uh, basketball, football, you see some upper body strength being developed because of the necessity of that being important i mean you see all these things and of course as you go backwards 
when you start thinking about athletes being developed, uh, and by that I mean younger athletes, beginning athletes, or what we call chronological training age, where they haven't trained very much, no matter what sport you play in, those programs are almost identical. They're not just similar. They're almost identical because the qualities just need to be generally happening to begin with, right? Skill training is going to happen already on the court, on the field, in the pool. We, we don't have to do anything with that. In fact, we can't. But, you know, so as you progress a little bit to more eliteness, it change a little bit. But I think the, the, I think the, the neural part of it changes, not really the the fundamental. You've already done that basis. There's no reason to get back to it. Um, I say that really where the where the program gets differentiated is when you start looking at the conditioning and the the plyometrics. So when you look at a program, you could say, well, I'm not quite sure about that. But when you see a lot of change direction, when you see a lot of shorter movements, you say, tennis, basketball. Okay, I can see that being happening. Soccer, in some instances especially if you see one that has really short uh, change of directions and drilling. Uh, and then also on maybe an, on an alternative day, some longer striding 60, 80, hundred meters, you'd say soccer, rugby, Australian rules, right? I mean, you, you, you'd say that's where it is. But if you took that Australian rules program and put it somewhere, we squatting, cleaning, snatching, jerking, bench pressing, shoulder work, um, core work, you'd say, not quite sure. You know, that could be, could be football, could be wrestling, could be rugby. Uh, and then all of a sudden you start looking at these other things. You say, ah, okay. So uh, I, I don't know that there's really all that much different. You know, I mean, you're designing, you're designing programs based on need. And that need comes from what's the primary movements and what's the primary physiology. That'll, that'll differentiate your, your resistance training. And because it's not always strength training, but resistance training and your conditioning. Cool, 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 cool. That's awesome. The um, and then, do you have any? Because obviously you've worked on all these sports, especially the throwing sports, right? The mm-hmm. volleyball, like the beach volleyball. I think you're involved at Olympic level and obviously baseball. Yeah. Especially yep. philosophies on throwing and how you might train a throwing athlete. Um, is there a lot of rotational work in there? Is there a lot of uh, weighted implements? Is it uh, simple stuff in the weight room? I'd, I'd love to hear this. Well, I'll tell you, you know, so I just did an article on simplyfaster.com, uh, simply, S-I-M-P-L-I, not Y, faster.com. Uh, I got about 10 articles there. One of them was shoulder training, like what, what's happening there, right? And so if you look at the shoulder, you know, number one, let's, let's get this straight right now. There is not one thing that an overhead athlete cannot perform in the terms of resistance exercise. That, that's a myth. They can do whatever they want. In fact, they should. In fact, we talk about often overhead pressing is not a good idea for overhead athletes. Well, if we're training full range of motion, why wouldn't we go overhead? And if you can't go overhead, to me, that would tell me, okay, that's not good. If you can't get straight up over your head like this, something's wrong with that. So why wouldn't you train overhead? I think the grandmother could tell you that. You know, well, yeah. Yeah, but you, you know, you'd think so. Yeah. But that's been a prevalent thought, at least here in the States, for. I don't know how long, 30 years, 40 or 50 years. In fact, there'll be some guys, and when you show them the research, it says, this is not true. This is what the science says. They would, they would just get probably more upset than if you talk to them differently because they're so emotionally attached to that. You can't train overhead. Let me say this again. Now, there hasn't been one documented piece of evidence, research, or anecdotal or otherwise that says you can't do that or that says that somebody's been hurt by you. Yeah, we're still basing a lot of these programs on, oh, don't do that. You know, so. 
that's number one. Um, and number two is we also find out through the research that the kinetic change is pretty important in, in, uh, in throwing velocity, especially when your feet are on the ground, right? So to the degree that there's studies right now, Joseph, that show leg training and scapular positioning in the same study. So they're just researching that. Let's take a look at the pelvic girdle and the legs, the stability of the hip, and what happens to the shoulder girdle when you deliver through that chain. I was surprised to see that. I'd never heard of anything like that before. But these papers I'm doing now are one of those things where, you know, I think sometimes I can feel like 35 years of coaching. I think there's people out there that know me, and I've, I've done a few things. They can say, oh, Coach Aleo's saying that. So, you know, it must be true. But I thought, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. I, I, want, I, I want somebody to tell me why you're doing that. I don't want to be able to say, oh, let's do that because Coach Aleo does that. No, no, that's not good enough. Sometimes it's not good enough for me. What I say is – Let's get the science down. Let's say, why are we doing that? Because the scapula has to be in place. It has to be able to shift up and down, back and forth, because it's that that keeps the head of the humerus centrally located. If that's moving around, that, the humerus has got to chase it. That's when you get labral and rotator cuff problems. And it's not too far-fetched to think if that scapula isn't solid, you're going to blow your elbow out, which you hear, we hear a ton of elbow stuff happening in the big leagues, right? Frankly, I think it's because it's poor lower body training. And certainly by poor, I mean not heavy enough. Some would say, oh, I'm doing lunges and squats. You look at the weight they're doing, you think, that's not even grown-up weight. I mean, let's, let's do, you know, let's train. So, you know, I, during that one, that research for that paper, Joseph, I ended up finding out that the scapula was way more important than I originally thought. In fact, I, I mentioned in the article, I think I may have undertrained, even though I was training, like, so we talk about a push-pull ratio, having more pulling more setting back than pushing. And I was going, sometimes it was going two to three, three to four, push the pull. I think if I was to go back and do it now, I would do it one to two. I know it sounds a lot, but then when you look at the dynamics of throwing a baseball or hitting a volleyball overhead or a tennis, you know, a tennis serve, the velocity of sprint swimming, I think you realize how important that scapula is and how much the decelerators play in, in an unbelievably critical role there. Not something just to say, oh, we'll do a little of this and a little of that. No, it's, it's got to be critical. In fact, you know, I mean, maybe that's, that might be even less than you need. I'm not sure, especially in season, especially because there's no way that you can match the number of throws, the number of volleyball hits, the number of strokes with any sort of repetition in the weight room with load. So, uh, so you're already out of balance. You're already in the negative balance. You're already, you know, as they say in baseball, you already got two strikes against you, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think that's the, the key to shoulder health in overhead athletes: the scapular positioning, and that only comes from strength. It doesn't come from endurance. It doesn't come from handling two-pound rotator cuff weights. I mean, think about it. Do you honestly think, if you think about it, that two-pound rotator cuff weights really slow is going to decrease the risk of injury when your arm is accelerating so fast, throwing 90-mile-an-hour fastballs? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. No sense at all. Uh, also, too, you know, it was also noted that before we used to do these really small rotator cuff things, right, small weights, slow weights. You talk to some really good therapists, guys have been at it for 30 years, guys in baseball, they'll tell you, if you're going slow, it better be heavy or it's a waste of time. Hmm. I, there's, there's, there's some truth there for sure. I, I, I really enjoyed that, that 
the whole training, the decelerators to take the brakes off in terms of uh, to, to decrease the sort of braking signals that get sent through to the brain because, hey, the, the brain doesn't want it to hurt yourself, you know what I mean? And uh, right, right. Um, there's, there's those influence as well. And so, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's, that's gold. It really is, Bob. Um, and, and do you apply the same sort of stuff to sprint and jump? Uh, is, is it a similar philosophy there? Well, they're, I don't know about similar, but of course, deceleration is really important there. I will, I will go back for just a second. And, and all those studies too, by the way, when they talked about increased risk of shoulder injury, it was all about an imbalance of the decelerators and accelerators. And none of those imbalances were coming because the decelerators were so strong, they were causing injury, not one. It was all the stuff that was happening out front. So let's talk about, you know, sprinting and jumping. Well, yeah, I think, of course, you have to, you know, be pretty smart about that. And then the other thing you have to do there is, like in baseball, I mean, you got you got to realize how many throws you're taking, just like in the jumps and sprints, you know, what kind of training are you doing out on the track? You know, you can only take so much there, and you have to account for that stress. Um, and that's where good, good dovetailing of expertise with coaches and strength coaches come, right? Um, I think we, we realized that how important the, the hamstrings are in deceleration, but, you know, there was also a couple of studies that, that have shown that perhaps that's not the case in hamstring injury and sprinters, you know, that we're not, we're not seeing as much there as we thought, but there, I don't think there's any question about training the backside kinetics because you're pulling through so much. We know it's not, it's not stride rate. It's stride length. In fact, Wayne did a bunch of studies on that showing that even slow runners have about the same sort of turnover as elite world record holders. So it's not how fast you turn your feet over. It's how much force you put into the ground to the next step. So you can go like this. One guy's got, you know, whatever, 50 pounds of force. The next guy does 100. That means that guy's going to be down the track farther after, you know, 20 steps. So that I think that's the piece. And again, it goes back to the fundamentals of strength. I mean, you've got to get strong. And, you know, the question is always asked, like, well, how strong is strong? And, well, in sprinting, you got to be strong enough to produce the highest amount of power, which we know is not always maximum strength, you know, right? It's, it's always somewhere between, you know, here and, here and there, somewhere in this upper part. It doesn't have to be the most, but it can't be the least. And, I, and again, I think that, you know, that is a pretty critical element we talk about core training, but there's not been a ton of studies that have related core to sprint performance, you know, that, that is of any negligible sort of, you know, like significant level, like we have to do core. We're just never going to get fast. That's also suggesting that if you were to, you know, squat, that your core is not active or that if you're pulling weights off the ground, your core is not active or that if you're doing dumbbell lateral raises for your shoulders that your core is not active, of course it is. You are doing training, you know, so you have to be careful about that. In fact, when you go back to baseball with my pitchers, during my time back with the A's from, from 93 to 2001, we didn't do one core exercise, not one twist, not one crunch, not one plank. Um, but all those guys were healthy, throwing almost 200 innings. They all squatted over 400 pounds. And I can't help believe that that the squat is probably the most underrated core exercise there is. Sure, sure. Massive compressive forces that you've got to tolerate through the spine and through the trunk. And oh, and, no doubt, no doubt. And there's also movements in, in all planes that you that you've got to stabilize that 
it, it's right. not a, especially if it's free it's if it's, if it's a barbell you know what i mean no yeah i agree with that bob for sure yeah it's, yep. it's a really good point the uh i will add too though that i think the one thing that i've changed and, and many people have is spending more time in the one-legged area you know so typically now over the last 10 or 15 years i've now come to grips with more you know we'll squat we'll squat two-legged either front or back once a week but that second leg workout is going to be a one-legged event either a step up reverse lunge lunge something like that um, i think that's also critical because you know for years and years we always talked about you know running being a one-legged event but really one-legged work wasn't all that prevalent for a long time um so that's that's the other thing that where that balance comes i think the balance comes from uh also doing one-legged stuff and that that will you'll you'll easily see where the imbalance is if one leg's not handling as much as the other you'll see where you're imbalanced one way or another and then you can get that attacked uh, you know the way you're supposed to yeah cool cool and mate how do you um this this brings me to mind my, my next sort of uh flow on and yeah. how i'm thinking how do you plan training like based on these field and courts what so we've talked about the philosophies of sprint jump and throwing which is obviously integral to all sports um yeah. as, a, as an underlying uh underlying ability how do you put those into field and court sports how do you um how do you say, okay, this, we're going to do strength here and then you'll have technical training and then we're going to sprint the next day or vice versa? Like how do you, when you think about it, when you work with the technical coach, how do you say we want to do this here and this here and, and uh, this is the reasons why we do and this is the reasons why we don't? Right. Well, periodization, you know, I mean, I, it just kind of, it ruffles my feathers a little bit when you hear about periodization is dead, it doesn't work. I mean, I, that's just a load of crap in my mind, especially because, you know, look, you can you can add all the fancy terms you want on to, you know, acquisition and, you know, whatever the other ones are. I mean, frankly, they're even paid for it. But um, all those fancy terms, they, they really they, they really don't tell the whole story, right? The whole story is if you're writing a workout and you expect something to happen at the end of that training cycle, that's periodization. You must be, you can't just, you're not just throwing something down there and saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's impossible. right? Um, and so that's what we do. And so you have, you know, you have off season, in season, and then your transitional period where you have your rest and you start up again. Really, it only, you know, the, the off season really is, you know, you know, the preparatory phase divided up into, you know, general and specific. And then you have your competitive season, which is just it. And then you have your, you know, the off season can start again, really. But that first part of the off season, you could probably say that's called the transitional. That's, you know, recovery, rest, uh, maybe light exercises, something that's not really sport-like, maybe nutrition changes a little bit. Um, And so, you know, with the programs I've had the most success with, writing came great relationships with the sport coaches. And for me, I've been really blessed to have some of the greatest coaches in sport history to be able to work with. So I learned tons from them and I'm hoping that I, at some point had taught them something within their sport. Um, the other part too, that was really good was these guys and girls trusted my knowledge. I mean, that's a big part too. And I trusted them on the field, right? I knew that they wouldn't do too much or too little that would affect me. And they trusted that I wouldn't do too much or too little to affect the, the athlete. And so it's really just that. I mean, I mean, there's some typical, uh, typical fundamental principles that you abide by off season and in season, right? And the only thing that changes those programs 
from years is chronological training age, how long each one of those athletes have trained, strength levels to a certain degree. And I say a certain degree because when you're younger, your strength levels don't matter as much. Um, what I was ended up doing in college was taking freshman average gains of freshmen and comparing them to other freshmen to see, okay, I don't care if you're squatting three, four, 500 pounds. I just care if you've gone up 32% in the first four months or whatever the number is, right? If you've done that, then I know that, you know, I can kind of prod you a little bit. And then you have your minor adjustments along the way. But generally, you have some benchmarks that tell you it's time to go here now. It's time to go here now, right? Um, and, of course, it all starts with, you know, technique, uh, setting up stable technical parameters that, you know, they will use that technique all the time, whether the bar's got 100% on it or the bar's empty. It'll all look the same, right? And that way, when it comes testing time, then I, you know, Joseph, I can compare your numbers to my number because we both squat the same or we both bench the same. Now, I will go backwards just a little bit. Squatting's a different story now. So I, I've, I've rarely kept a squat average with some of the people I've worked with because everybody has a different squat depth. I don't want anybody tucking that back butt underneath when they're squatting. And the first thing they do is lumbar uh, flexion before they stand up, or I mean extension before they stand up. I want the legs to be working. So some people will squat higher than others, and we know anatomically it's sometimes it's impossible for some people to get deep. But I made sure whatever their depth is is what they remain at. The other part of that full range of motion, I can get that from pulling off the ground. I'm a big Olympic-style lifting guy from the ground. I, I don't do very much out of the hang. With advanced athletes, I do because they've already developed all that good strength from the bottom. So maybe I want something quicker, like a hang snatch, hang clean, something like that. Um, but, you know, those are really the parameters I use. I just look at their testing. Everything that I've ever done, I mean, ever, ever since I began in 1980, whatever, was based on testing, just taking the data, designing programs off, off the testing data. That's how they should be driven. I mean, otherwise, you're just guessing. If you're, if you're just repeating cycles because last year we did the same thing in the offseason, you're really shortchanging uh, folks on the other side of the bell-shaped curve, right? You know, you'll mostly affect people in here, but not as good as you can if you're saying, all right, Joseph, you, you're ready to make a move. Even though you're the same age, train just as long as, as uh, Johnny over here. I think I need to put another four to six weeks of strength training in there because he's not making that goal. When we test that, that should be able to tell me where we go next. Mm-hmm. Mate, 100%. And, uh, yeah, that the whole nature versus nurture and then dealing with those standard deviations away from the norm. And you have that within every team sport. You know, I mean, some people, like, uh, take to weights like there's no tomorrow. Some people, they could be struggling away for six weeks and nothing's, nothing's going up there. And um, – and, being able to recognize that and go, well, maybe we need to do something different for these people. And uh, I, I right. agree with that. You're shortchanging, shortchanging people a lot by, by not looking at the data and not looking at how they're responding to what you're doing. Um, and it doesn't have to be like a real formal approach, I don't think. Uh, informal, like, a, like with you yourself just going over it without writing a scientific paper about it can be, can be fine. Right. I mean, right. Um, well, it's, it's pretty simple. And of course you have the other parameters too now. So I don't, I don't just rely on the squat to tell me if we need to squat more because in the end, our, our total goal, Joseph is to run faster and jump higher, you know, except maybe if you're a golfer, I guess, but, but I mean, if, um, if my goal is to get you to do that, then it might make sense for me to keep looking at the 10, 20 yard 
uh, electronic timed events that we're doing in, in vertical jumping or long jumping, those kind of things to say, okay, they, they, they tend, they're not going up enough. The squat's not going up enough. So it's, you know, that kind of thing, or they're going up good or they've stopped. Let's say they've stopped and you say, well, it's not worth us to try to gain another 50 pounds on a squat that might take us, you know, three months to gain 0.0 something on a sprint. Let's try to get them quicker. Let's, let's do some speed squats. Let's, let's see if we can, you know, mix in some uh, higher velocity Olympic lifts to see if we can't get the nervous system to, to bust them out a little bit. So it's not just the lifting we're looking out to affect the lifting. We're looking at other parameters as well. Sure, sure. Mate, and this is, this is a brilliant segue, actually, because of the question uh, I wanted to ask you. It was, was like how, a layup. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like a layup. You're just, you're just assisting me here, mate. It's like uh, Magic Johnson. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, mate, how have, you, um, how have you implemented that type of sort of analysis of sports science into your roles? And it might be the different roles, like when you first started to your last position at um, uh, North Carolina State. And how have you kind of put the sports science into those positions and then what have you learned from that the good and the bad um and what have you seen out there in the field that's a good question you know i have a lot of feelings about that i i think generally speaking i think that we are trying to get there in the sports science sector here in the states but i don't think we're doing a very good job at it you know i mean i know how how it's integrated in new zealand and in australia and in the uk um I think it's very much a collaborative effort. Uh, but I also think the people that are working in those sports are also very keen on those sports. They understand those sports. You know, in other words, you're not plucking somebody out of the Australian, you know, basketball sports science position to have them work with the rugby team. You've got the rugby guy doing the rugby right? They've all worked in that sport. They know it here. I, I, I've seen, you know, sports bring in sports scientists that have not been exposed to the sport, which also means you haven't been exposed to the culture, the personalities, the, de- the demands just on the daily demand sort of thing. I mean, yeah, sure, you can look at a sport and say, you know, okay, they're, that's speed endurance, right? You, you know that, like I'm watching a tennis match, if you have any physiological wherewithal, you'll say, nah, we probably shouldn't do any distance running. You know, that's more of an interval-based sort of sprint. Okay, I got that part. There's more to it than that. I also see here happening where I always hear about sports science at sea. Guys talk about sports science here, but rarely do I see any interventions. So I see, oh, here's the player load for a game, or here's the player load for a drill. Or, and I say, well, anybody can see that. You just read the monitor, right? But now what? Like, what do we do now, right? I'm really, that's, you know, another reason why I'm excited to, to come over. And believe me, I'm spending more than a week there. I want to make sure I see whatever I can see. But I, I feel like there's so many strength coaches like me, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a unicorn at all on this. We're doing all of that. We've been doing sports science all along. The way I like to say it is I'm not a scientist, but I use science every day. And, and so I've been doing myself and, and many others like me have been doing the catapult, right? Or connects on whatever it is downloading the data, looking at it, looking at what's that look for Joseph today at his practice, and then I'm coming up with the intervention and his training and his warm-up, going to the coach and discussing. There's no magic power in that. I, I think we've gotten sort of 
I'm not sure, persuaded or brainwashed, not by anybody, but ourselves here, that, you know, we need somebody special to do that. Where us, we're on the floor seeing this all day long. I mean, I see this person in the weight room, everything they've done there. I take them through their warm up, I watch them in practice, I collect the data from that practice. I can see all of these things. We should be able to do that. That's what we deal with every day, right? So uh, I don't know that I'm doing anything different other than the way we collect data is so much more refined, of course, than technology is. I mean, look, when I was at UCLA in the 80s, you know, my cell phone was about this big. Right? <laughs> for, for the listeners out there, he's got his... He's got his oh, I mean, it's, you can't even see my hands, right? He's just oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it, looked, it looked like a uh, like a World War One field phone, right? And so now we've got it down to you know right there, and I think that's you know we we can better attack things. Like for instance, you know the Vertec will always be good, but let's face it, not every guy jumps a half inch every time he jumps, right? Not every woman can can jump a half inch every time. I want to see exactly what it is. Not 21.5, if it's 21.38, I want to see that. So, um, so the just jump mats or some of these opt jump, some of those mats are fantastic. And I know the studies on them talk about accuracy. I know all that. But look, there's nothing that's foolproof or completely accurate and reliable. It's how reliable. And of course, I, we also know too, speaking of data, that the more data we get, the more the numbers and the sound start to drop down noise levels out and you start to get trends in that area so uh and again you know i ran all that myself and my staff was running all that and we were using you know heart rate monitors we're using jump readiness we're using fms we're using the catapult we're using um first beat we're using all these things right strength coaches we're 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 people who understand that so i i really want to you know one of the things i really want to to bring over to Australia is to let everybody know, say, I can do all this. And there's lots of guys like, me. you know, I mean, I think that's the way it should be. Not to say that the sports scientists are any less than us, but uh, I'd like to see us be involved a little bit more because I think what we can offer uh, is a different perspective from our chair, seeing, you know, the stretching, the squats, the movement, the energy, the things we see every day. And we're also looking at tracking you know we're we're calling that sports science that's just that that's just absolutely tracking right so i mean that's that's not new to me i uh and and again i i'm i'm not saying that's just me i'm special i'm not um but we need to do a better job here in the states with it i think there's been some misunderstandings and probably out of just enthusiasm and wanting to get things better of looking at what you have all done there saying like well that's the model right I say, well, that is the model. I'd like to see it, but there's a couple things that have to happen. Like number one is it has to be collaborative. Like you can't feel bad when somebody starts talking about your area, right? Especially when you got to think, we're all trying to make Joseph better. I mean, if I see that and you don't, it's not unlikely that, you know, so we just say never personal, right? We you've got to start with that. So it's got to be the culture of sports science and the sports scientist has to be involved. Uh, and then I think we got a chance. Right, and there's 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 something um, definitely to be said along those lines with uh, with not just having objective measurements, but also subjective as well from the coaching staff and the S and C staff, and going, well, these are what the numbers say, and this is what we're seeing when we're looking at them. 
Um, and that, that's the real art of coaching, I think. And uh, if you can marry yeah. those two together, then you're on something brilliant. Um, but if you don't, then it can be a, a really confusing time for everybody involved. Well, it's, you know, when I, when I was with the Oakland A's, you know, I was involved in all, all the player personnel meetings, you know, what we were supposed to do. And not every one of those meetings was about, you know, rainbows and cupcakes, right? I mean, you know, there was some hollering and screaming and yelling. Everybody wants to get their point across. But at the end of the day, you know, we leave the meeting with one thought, go get some dinner and drink a beer, and we go out it the next day. Like, all oh, everybody in there was just for one thing. How do we win a championship? And if somebody says to me, hey, Bobby, you know, I think maybe we're doing the wrong running, you know, can you tell me about that? I'm not offended. I mean, if I'm making a mistake or I'm stopping us all from – from getting a ring and a trophy and more money, then I, I, I need to change. I need to take a look at this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that doesn't happen very as much as it should here. You know, I would say that. I wouldn't say very much because I can't, you know, I'm not everywhere, but the intel I get from talking to people, like it's just hard to get everybody in to be one piece. And I think that's something, if I can guess, is happening much better abroad than it is here, right? And the other thing too is, uh, and I've been told this by, you know, people in Australia and, and as I said, New Zealand and UK, that the sport coaches here have a lot more to say about what they do uh, here than they do uh, where you're at. Because not because they're any better or, or worse, it's because they trust what you have to tell them and say, this is better for my team. If you think we should practice less today, that's what we're going to do. If it makes us healthier and better, we'll do that. Not really that way here. Yeah, look, I, I think there's, there's still um, obviously the grass is always greener wherever you go. Um, so, like the person in the United okay. States, like the, Australia is going to be it's great, everything's great over there, and, and it's definitely not the case there. And then same vice versa here in, in Australia. Oh, they're so well resourced in the United States, blah blah blah. Um, and also, I think also just because gotcha. science has been a, around for so long in Australia, with that interaction with the coaches, what you're seeing is sort of ten to fifteen years of the result of that work versus maybe in the States, it's only been the last five years when it's been really prevalent right. um, with the things like the catapults and the G. Yeah, good point. Good point. And maybe in another five years, it'll be a similar situation. Um, but but uh, yeah, I guarantee. Well, let's hope, I think. because it- there, There's still coaches in Australia that will, uh, that will, that may discount what a, um, what some what some sports scientists will tell them, or the sports scientists' advice might not be as integrated as well, depending on the culture and the team, and it all depends on the coach's philosophy, like anywhere, and uh, you'll get that in every country. Right. Yeah. Mate, okay. Uh, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. Grass is always greener. Trust me, grass is always greener. Well, you can always say too, the grass is always, as my wife says this, the grass is always greener where you water it. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure, man, for sure. Um. Hey, you touched on you touched on uh, the Oakland days there and the meetings you had, and you're involved yeah. in in with the Oakland days again. You gave me another layup, thanks, mate. Another layup um, to segue into this. <laughs> I wish I, I wish I knew what I was doing, but I'll take it. Yeah, um, you you were involved with the Oakland A's during what is what is known. It's became famous actually as, as yeah. uh, the Moneyball era. Um, and yeah. every sports scientist would just it's it's like something that's. Um, or an analyst or person involved with data, which um, sports science is getting more and more involved with data, even strength and conditioning coaches getting more and more involved right. with data. Right. But it's, it's like an urban legend. Tell us about what it was like during that time. Um, obviously, there was a book written about it, a film written about it. You had the inside uh, 
inside view. Um, talk about that. Uh, I'd love to hear uh, hear about what went on in those times and uh, and how how it all uh, how it all was all viewed through the eyes of a strength and conditioning coach. Well, I, I'll say this. Um, I thought that I had. I went to the ACE twice, right there. So I was there from ninety three to two thousand one. Then I came back in two thousand eight to two thousand eleven beginning of 2011. And I'll say this, I had the best job in baseball twice. No, no doubt about it as a strength and conditioning coach. My, my, my opinion was valued. Um, at the same time I performed, but you know, and this really kind of goes into the sports science thing too, a little bit because, um, you know, but there was very few of this was about, you know, Billy being the general manager, assistant general manager, the trainer, me. I mean, there was only five or six of us. So it wasn't like you had a panel of 16, 20 guys in there, right? Saying, okay, I'm the, I'm the rehab strength coach. I'm the return to play strength coach. I'm the, you know, whatever. Um, so the communication was much easier. I will say that. And again, here, I think too, what's happened is, you know, we've added in some instances, we've added more sports science levels. And so instead of making it easier they just added more, we've added more layers. Um, so that, that made it easier there. But again, I don't remember one time in those years, Billy ever asking me or telling me like, that's not a good idea. Let's change that. That's no good. Not, not one time. And I started with Tony LaRusso, who's now in the hall of fame as a manager, one of the greatest managers of all time. He, ne- he did the same thing. Not one coach on that staff, not one trainer, not janitor. Nobody asked me, like, they just let me do my thing. Essentially, it was, you know, you're here, you're a pro, do your thing, you know. And so, you you know, it gives you a lot of confidence, you know. At the same time, it raises your level of expectation. If you've got pride, I don't want to let, I don't want to let you down. And you got that much trust in me, I'm going to feed that back to you. So that was a big part of it. Now, how that all happened was real simple, though. I mean, again, you know, statistically, sure, it was kind of the onset of all that. And how it happened was real simple. We just didn't have the resources financially like the Yankees did or other teams for that fact to bring in great players, you know, just go out and buy home runs and pitching. We couldn't do that. So the Moneyball philosophy really came uh, under a different definition. It was how do you compete without the resources? Because your owner doesn't want to win a championship any less than anybody else. It's just that you have these certain now guidelines, right? Here's what you got. Um, And again, it's not much different than what I got. Okay. I like the bench press. Well, if somebody can't grip it right or his shoulders hurt, then we got to do something else because you're still going to play. So it was the same deal. And so what they end up doing is how are we going to find it? You know, and it kind of, you know, it kind of, kind of cascaded its way down. I mean, essentially, how do you win games? You score more runs than the other team. Well, how do you score runs? Well, that's simple. You had home runs, bases. Okay. Is there any other way you can score runs? Well, first of all, you can't score runs unless you're on base. So can you only get on base with just a hit? No. There's lots of ways to get on base, an error, a walk. Okay. So now they start finding players with on-base percentage. All of a sudden, that became more popular um, to us and later on to most people than batting average. Right? Batting average tells you how good a hitter you are, but it doesn't tell you how much you're on base uh, other than that average because you, you may have walks in there and the guys get errors and all that. Okay. So then that kind of happened that way. And uh, it was – one of the most exciting times in athletics I've ever been involved in. I mean, because look, we almost lost a hundred games twice when I was there. And so just for everybody listening in baseball, a hundred game is the yard mark for being abysmal. So if you're really bad, you lose a hundred games. 
that also means that you're playing probably about a month and a half for nothing. You almost have no chance of winning. So, um, so it was just so special, you know, and then of course what I was doing was really special because I ended up formulating my process around hitting homers, walking and pitching. So really we just, we lifted the hell out of weights. I mean, that's what we did. We lifted a lot of them. I think we dominated a lot of weight rooms back in the day when there was a lot of weight rooms that didn't have enough weight for us. Let's put it that way. Now that's not so true now because everybody's got, you know, cages and better training facilities and all that. But, um, you know, and I had a young team, they were hungry. It was really enjoyable. It was an atmosphere that was just unbelievable. And then all of a sudden we slowly start winning. Right. I'll give you, I'll give you a, uh, a funny story. When the new ownership took over the ball, the money ball ownership that that's talked about in the movie, when they first took over, they were having trouble with, um, bookkeeping about how to pay us, you know, because we're getting, we're in every other state where we, we're getting uh, meal money per diem and, you know, add it in, take it out to get taxed on. Ta- so guys were getting checks for like, you know, 10 bucks, you know, at the beginning of the month. You're like, what the heck is this? <laughs> at the end of the year, the one year I end up getting a, a check in the mail for, I think it was like $12,000 or extra. something like that. And so, you know, I was like, oh, great. They screwed up this check and now I got to call them, tell them they paid me too much. And when they, when I called them, they said, I said, hey, here's what's happened. You've overpaid me. They said, no. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, you guys, we finished the second place. You get money for second place. Like, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I took it. And then that's when I kind of started realizing like, damn, okay. And then, you know, and you start looking and we got better and better and better. And then it was just, you know, confidence grew. We had great players, a great development in the minor league system. Uh, I mean, it was just I don't know what to tell you other than it's special. Now, let's talk a little bit about the movie. I'm sure everybody else was. The movie exactly the way, you know, everything happened. Is Billy Bean mercurial? I wouldn't say he's volatile. i say he's mercurial. Yeah, he's mercurial. Um, he got a lot of pressure. puts a lot of pressure on himself. But that was, that's what makes him great, right? He's a smart guy. Um, did we have to pay for sodas and beers out of a vending machine? No. no that, was, that, that, that was Soderbergh's way to say okay, these guys didn't have much money. That was true, right? Um, and, you know, all the stuff about him not relying on the scouts, that was all true. But when you go back to the sports science thing, Joseph, about, you know, the data that you're dealing with humans, not just numbers, I think Billy would be one of the first guys to tell you, you know, the numbers, you know, they don't lie, right? After you get enough numbers, they're going to tell the truth. Now, nothing's 100% correlated, right? But at the same time, in sports, you have to you have to be intuitive. You know, at some point, you have to use intuition. You just can't stare at the paper and say, you know. And I'll give you an example in baseball. If you look at somebody who who's hitting three thirty three, that means you're getting a hit every three at bats. But it could be that you get a hit and then you don't get a hit for fifteen at bats. You know, and and so now let's say so that's one thing. Then you make up for it somewhere along the line. It's intuitiveness that good coaches with good skills and have been around with experience will tell you this is when he's going to get the hit, right? Uh, or in football, this is the play we need to run now, you know? Um, so let's say for in baseball, for instance, let's say you do get a hit every one out of three times, which is impossible. Let's just make it utopic. This guy gets a hit every three times. Question is, which two of those times doesn't he get a hit? So it's pretty difficult, right? So 
the way I like to say it, these days is intuition, common sense, and science. That gives you the best result. Not any one of those three, and not just two of those three. You need them all. You know, let's, let's, let's think about this. Intuition is not any you know magic power either. It's based on experience and tons of it. Right? Hard to be intuitive mm-hmm. if you've coached for only five years. There's really no background of information there. Right? Um, but you know, when you got intuition, then common sense comes up that we've talked about earlier too. And then you put the science on there, you got a nice ball of thought that's probably going to get you in the right direction. So, um, yeah, the money ball was a special time. I, I never tire from talking about that. That's for sure. Hey, right on, right on. That's great. It's a great little insight. And I liked, um, just like how they were sort of reverse engineering from on base percentage, you were reverse engineering from pitching speed and home runs. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, and, uh, with your yeah. street work, and I think that's something that we kind of forget about too. And as as S and C coaches, is yeah, it's great to get people strong as well. But you've got to reverse engineer for what they actually need in their sport, and sometimes that's very strength dependent. But you've also got to make sure that that's the number one priority, not just more numbers in a gym. Right, right. I like that term, reverse. And I'm gonna write that down. By the way, I'm writing it down. Mate, all yours, all yours. Engineering. All right. You might you might hear me use it in November, just in case. Right. Right on, right on, <laughs> mate. You um, you you talked about um, uh, the like if you haven't really had that experience that for that five, um, over five years, you know what I mean, of coaching to have that intuition, it's something I I definitely relate to. Um, and I I know myself, I'm getting better and better and better as I go on. I've made heaps of mistakes, and the mistakes just maybe become a little bit less now. Um, yeah. Or, or but I'm still making them. Um. But I'd love to know, and this is especially for the young coaches, the guys under five years, what did you learn maybe in your, you've had 35 years at the, at the coalface. What have you learned maybe decade by decade? What's been the first 10 years? What's been the second 10 years? What's been the third 10 years? What have you learned in those segments? And then what would be your advice for like one of those young coaches that he's only five years in and, and he's like, well, how do I get this intuition? Or what, what, are, the, what are the things I should should sort of try to understand that the older coaches already understand. Um, right. Yeah, mate, the, the three, the three decade, uh, decade uh, learning right. changes or, and, and they can be brief. You can elaborate. Um, and then for those young coaches out there, would be, would be yeah. awesome. you know, when you, say, when you put it that way, as I'm looking at my picture here on this, on the Skype and I'm like, God damn, I got a gray beard here. I guess I have a coach. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I've never broken it up that way. So you've been uh, you've been very insightful with these questions. I'll say this. The first 10 years were really spent at one place. But the value of those 10 years was that I was also looking at 21 sports, right? But I also was able to see during that time some of the greatest athletes in each one of those sports collegiate history. And in some cases, some of the greatest athletes in that sports history internationally, right? So I got to see what that looked like. And then I also got to see what their teammates looked like and who weren't as good as them, you know, like who on the track team that wasn't Mike Powell uh, or who wasn't uh, Gail Devers or Jackie Joyner, Kevin Lewis, uh, Danny Everett. So, I mean, at the same time, John Godina. So I think that was valuable for me to look at all those things. Right. And I just, I, I mean, I would just such a sponge, I'd suck it in. There was no reason why I shouldn't, right? And so I, uh, I just learned, I think, in those 10 years, I learned at the end, before I left to the A's, that, damn, you know, we did a lot of good things. 
you know, and, and I was a part of that. Later on in my 20th and into the 30th year, I realized the way you say that is that, you know, I've been associated with that. It's hard to say, you know, I did that, you know, or, you know, I won a national championship. No, I didn't. I didn't. I helped. I helped. I was associated with it for sure. That's up to everybody else to figure out how much I contribute. And frankly, you know, we probably could get in many avenues, depending on who you talk to, you know, probably more, more, uh, I don't know, more credit than we probably deserve. Listen, we're strength coaches, not any more than that, but certainly not any less, right? That's for sure. And as, you, as we've gotten better with the science, those guys who are better at science now are even going to be better than we were before. So that's, that's a big plus. I love the science. Absolutely love it. Um, and so, um, I learned that. I learned to look back and say, I did that. You know, we, we all did that together. What, what an interesting situation. But then I go to pro baseball and in the first couple of years there, I realized that really with, um, really with uh, what I had done in college was only applicable in certain areas. Cause now what I've done. So now I'm, I'm going from there for a whole nother nine years. Right? So now I'm adding up 19 years right off the bat. What I found there is it's different working with adults, right? And the pros is different because now you've switched development over to injury management, keeping guys on the field, right? And so those are the two different things I found out with the pros and college is that you, you change your methodologies. Well, I shouldn't say change your philosophy. Methodologies may be the same. Philosophies are and two, it's different having a conversation with 18 to 21 year olds than 25 and 35, 36 year olds. The dynamics change. So the strength and conditioning part really wasn't any different. What I got good at was applying those strength and conditioning principles to psychology, the psychology of those athletes. I realized I didn't have to compare anything when I was there because all those guys I worked with in college were all the same person, really, age-wise. And then I went up to the pros and I realized, okay, I've got to add something else into my repertoire. So I added two things, learning how to coach every day when we're still playing. So we lifted on days that we competed. There's very few sports to do that. Uh, and dealing with adults. So that was an interesting give and take there. And, and there was a few Hall of Famers that I worked with, guys who were big-time pros. Um, you know, you, you have to learn how to implement your program to them. Not that they don't think it doesn't work, but these guys have a livelihood, right? And if it was me, I'm going to probably choose what I think is best for my money, my career, my family. Um, so, I, you know, you learn how to – not right away, but you learn how – it's not personal – and then you think, God, that does make sense. You know, like I, if I thought that you're going to give me something that's going to shorten my career, I'm not going to do it. I mean, I don't care what you think, right? And so you have to figure out and be, you know, be creative along those lines. Then during, you know, when I moved on to the next thing, I went four years on my own for a little while. Um, but then I came back to uh, college and that's when I went back to UC Santa Barbara and was with the mid-major school and I just wanted to get back into coaching a little bit and so the thing I learned was you know be grateful for having these opportunities I mean lifting with kids that you know their their number one goal was you know to be a doctor a lawyer 
surgeon. I mean, these kids were brilliant kids. At the same time, they didn't try or want to win. They didn't try any less or want to win any less than Division One school kids, even though they know they probably weren't going to be professionals. They were great for me. Their effort was tremendous. So again, it, it, it kind of solidified for me that effort's the only thing you can control. You can't control your skill level. That's, that's some DNA there. But your effort can be controlled. Nobody can stop you from doing that. That's up to you. Those kids did a great job with that. And I also learned, again, that the fundamentals work every time. The basics are, is what everything is driven from. And again, I saw that because I was taking kids that were not at the same skill level and certainly not the same trend level. And they were making, you know, four, six, eight-inch vertical jump improvements. And I'd never seen anything like that before. Well, because at UCLA, in the pros, I had skilled athletes. They were already jumping high and running fast. Right? So, I mean, that I was surprised at how slow and all these guys were. But then I thought, okay, so now what do you do, right? And I learned, I learned to get back to a little bit. And I'll never, I'll never depart from that and never – uh, take for granted what I learned there. Went back to baseball, back to the same team, same management, not the same players, not the same situation. So it was a little bit different. Um, and so I, I don't know that I learned anything different there other than I, I didn't really want to travel anymore. <laughs> That's probably the thing I learned the most. But the job, again, was the best job in baseball. I came in, Billy called me and said, I want you to come back and help me write the ship again. We're not in the right place to be. Um, and so, you know, that challenge, I couldn't. I couldn't turn that down, especially from somebody who had treated me so well before. So I went and did that. And then I came to NC State. And, and, and this is where I learned a better appreciation for mentoring, where I really wasn't able to do that uh, all those years before. Maybe I was mentoring or teaching by virtue of people reading articles or books that I had been written um, or speaking engagements. But in this, I had hands-on things. I could pull people into my office and say, hey, Joseph, listen, let me give you an idea here. Keep your shirt tucked in, man. Be this needs to be tight. People need to know that, that you come prepared and you're professional. Small things like that make a difference. You know, those sort of smaller deals. The, the, the X's and O's, of course, you know, we're going to be absorbed anyway. Um, and, I, and I was going to teach him how to do that. But I took, you know, a great deal of pride and channeled lots of energy into, you know, paying it forward, teaching kids how to be coaches. And I, I, I had a blast at that. Basketball-wise, you know, it was, and again, you know, a very basketball-rich tradition-based school, taking a team and doing things in four years that a team hadn't done school and done in 25 years. I took pride in the fact that I was a part of that. And um, in that, the sports science thing came on and Catabolt came in and was working across with everybody. So football staffs were in our meetings with the regular staff. That wasn't happening anywhere in the country. Uh, took particular pride in that. So the sports science thing kind of blossomed, but that wasn't just NC State. It was more of an era than it was the school. Once that came out, I thought, this is something that's reigniting me a little bit. Like, I love to coach, but this thing is like candy. You know, I want to see all this because I kind of grew up with the science piece. I spent more time at some of these conventions listening to the science than I did the coaches because it was, it was, it was unbiased. You know, if you, if you go somewhere and say, here's my program at SNS or whatever, you know, XYZ State, this is the program I did and we won a national championship. I'm thinking, well, would you do that if you were at a junior high? Would you do that at another school? Probably you try, but the chances of doing it are not very good. You had different coaches, different times, different resources. You go to the science, pick that out. It's unbiased. It's just here it is. Here's what happens and choose it, fit your program, but not. But like, you know, like um, Tyson DeGrasse says, you know, 
the great thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. So it's, I love that. I love it. So that's kind of the thing that's kind of happened over the last years. And now my role as director of sports science and powerlift, I, I really think it should be, you know, the director of sports science is one thing, but really the science of sports, the sciences of sport is weight training, nutrition, psychology, tracking, uh, you know, athletic training, physiotherapy. That's the, the sciences of sport. Sports sciences and reading the computer and looking at player loads and all that. I mean, that's part of it. But, uh, and so that's all I'm doing right now is I'm just getting a good word about training. Some of my experiences, trying to talk up some coaches I know that are really good and that, that people should listen to. And so that's kind of the sports science part of what I'm doing trying to, we've now started what I call the sports science educational board with 10 really bright scientists who are also very good friends of mine that, that are in the lab. They're also certified strength coaches. And that's an unusual for a group of guys, right? So um, there's kind of a synopsis of what I've learned over the 30 years. Wow, what what a story! What what a it's it's, it's really neat. I, I want to ask I want to ask you did you, did you when you went from college to the pro did you ever have to coach a person that was older than you? And if, yeah, first I did. Yeah, yeah, first I did. I did. Um, um, so there was. Uh, Several of them, I wouldn't say several of them. There was a couple that were, that were older than me, but um, I'm trying to think how old was when I got there and I got there in 93. So I was 36. It's a good question. Maybe some guys were about the same age. Cause I mean, they were younger, but now when I go in, I mean, but now like at NC state, I was the oldest guy in the building, let alone, you know, <laughs> guy anywhere. So, you know, it's not, it's not hard to me to go anywhere and be the oldest guy, you know? Um, uh, but I, you know, again, I was really lucky to even those guys that were my age or very close had already been in the big leagues for, you know, eight, 10 years. They were providing me with information. I mean, they, they really led me more than I led them in the beginning. I mean, the fact that they were pros, none of them, had to do anything I say if they didn't want to and probably would have had great careers right but instead they were you know if you're going to help me I'm with you you know and uh they did a great job of leading me along the way including the athletic trainer uh, Barry Weinberg who brought me in I mean he the way I the way I say it is he was in front of me with a machete chopping down all the vines as we were walking through this thing together, right? I mean, it was the first time for all of us. I was the first strength coach in their history. They never had one. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, again, there was a, I'd forgotten about that. That was another first, right? So, um, that was interesting. That was interesting. I will say this too. And then with my two Olympic teams, I was on of all the things that I've accomplished, of course, you know, or been, a, uh, uh, accomplished with you know you win the national championship or you win your division or you win your your league but there's nothing like winning the world and we we won a gold in Beijing in 2008 and uh when I walked in for the finals on the main court to where my seat was up top you know a lot of the coaches and teammates or uh, teams from around the world still stayed and I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you it was pretty damn cool walking down there and having people saying, good luck, coach. And, you know, with their with their accents from Germany and Austria and 
in Japan and they, they knew who I was and I was, wow, I was just like, this is it, man. This is the big time right here. This is, uh, there's nothing like that. Yeah, 100%, 100%. No, and and um, it, it's so true about uh, you can you can be around them, around really successful people and uh, maybe that's a, it's a product of association, but it's uh, it's probably not causation. And uh, right. like I, I like in China, we I was lucky enough to be around. It was just gold medal factory. Um, yeah. but my my grandmother could be over there doing my my job, and they would have still won gold medal. No worries, and weightlifting and ping pong. It's 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 just wow, the nature of them. Um, so you quickly learn you're associated with it, but uh, yeah. But definitely not caught. You don't cause uh, too much. That's already innate, or that's or that's that's already something that's going on. Um, right. No, I, I agree. I think I think I think your task at that point is they'll let you know how much you help, right? And if if they don't say anything, that's fine. I mean, because I also say too, you know, um, great coaching is not coaching at all. Sometimes, you know, to be able to realize that to stay out of the way, that's great coaching. I think. I think you know, guys who aren't as good a coach. I think they get involved, frankly, and they shouldn't. Like people who, who are smart enough and know what their role is, I think not coaching is sometimes some of the greatest coaching jobs that have been done. Sure, sure. And, uh, yeah, you struck a chord also with your sort of example with uh, the, the, older, the older players and the A's. And, like, I've had situations where I've dealt with guys that are my age sort of thing, and they've been like, what are we doing today? I'm like, oh, what do you think? You know, what I mean? yeah. <laughs> because you want to hear their, their, because they, they, they know their body and, and so on, and, and they've got experience right. in those situations, and and uh, then you can marry what you kind of have in your head together with what they want. Um, but that's uh, a great point. Never thought about that. The other, the other thing you said you touched on is in the college, it's about developing, and the pros, yeah. it's about injury management, injury prevention. Mm-hmm. Um, this will probably be our last long piece uh, about, but tell us about that philosophy about injury prevention that that philosophy you have um and what underpins it and i'll go a little bit of a long way around here um, but it's something okay. that really struck with me uh i went out and visited um the milwaukee bucks when i was in the states last time and their sort of head of performance or or whatever you term that um the, the boss of the support staff uh, troy flanagan he he said something to me that really stuck with me it's like for him the strength and conditioning coach is a linchpin he's the person that a physio will repair as, as a reactive profession where a physio will repair things once they've been broken. A strength and conditioning coach might prevent things from being broken. Now, obviously, right. those are pretty broad classifications, but that really struck me from injury prevention philosophy, especially in the pros. And I, I want to hear your uh, your thoughts on that and uh, and how that sort of how your mindset changed from that development to injury prevention and uh, and what you did there. Well, for me, I think I think the um, I think the initiation of that thought was not wanting to see my name on the ticker on ESPN because it goes across like you know so and so pulled hamstring, so and so hurt shoulder, so and so dropped weight on their toe, you know, or something like damn And you know, let's be clear, you know, at that level when you're dealing with multi-million dollar athletes, when they get hurt no matter what you've done, the first thing that happens in your stomach is just, you just get sick to your stomach. I mean, at least I do anyway, you know, and then you, you know, you kind of, you just figure that's, you know, there's going to be a discussion. Like, I think when you get older, you get more confident, like, well, let's have it. Let's have the discussion, you know, in the beginning, you know, when you're just like, 
you first get to the pros, I think it, for me anyway, I shouldn't say you or anybody, when I first got there, I mean, I was looking at, now I played baseball too, right? So I was looking at guys that I was just watching on TV just a year ago, right? Some of these stars that have been traded to this team were playing in other teams and were all stars for years. And all of a sudden I'm training them. I'm stretching them. They're walking out the door. Hey, Bob, what, you know, I mean, like it was surreal for a little bit for me. Um, it didn't stop me from doing my job, but there, so there was the other part where, you know, like, like Barry Weinberg said, well, you know, welcome to the Oakland A's, you know, you're the new director of strength and conditioning. And today's the day you stop being a fan. Right. And he was right to a certain degree because you can't really do your job if you're a fan. You know, that fan thing kind of turns into respect a little bit and different. But I, I think for me, I mean, it was just the fear of the risk. So not to say you have any less risk with college athletes, but you can push the envelope a little bit because they can recover faster. You have, you know, a given amount of time. You have lots of resources. There's times where, and you have them all the time, right? In baseball, you know, baseball's over. In the wintertime, they go home. You don't see them. I mean, you're writing programs to them and all that. And I went out and visited some players that needed some updates because they'd been hurt before, had some some limitations. But they come back, and you have to be really conservative about your approach. And once you realize that, you know, not to say they couldn't be further developed, maybe gain a little bit more strength, a little more speed, based on what you see and what they've done before, the realization is this, if they need more development, they wouldn't be in the big leagues. If they needed more development, they wouldn't be in the AFL. They needed more development. They wouldn't be in the NFL or the NBA. Right. So, so then what is our role? Well, with those kids, well, with anybody, but with younger kids, when somebody asked me, and I hate using the word injury prevention because nobody's ever had that program. There's not one guy out there ever that's coached an injury prevention program. That's why I call it injury management. So what I say is when people say, do you have an injury prevention program? I say, yeah, it's called good training. There's nothing special. You have a good, well-rounded program and you attack it. That'll prevent injury. When you start doing injury prevention, like, like the typical connotation is light weights, range of motion, stretching. To me, that's called injury promotion. Now you haven't stressed the muscles. They're not going to, you know, the game is going to be way up and above anything you've prepared for. So now the biggest stressor becomes the game. Now you have problems, right? So my in-season philosophy quickly became not just with the older guys, um, but it was because of the older guys. It became heavier weights and very low volumes to get the muscle to feel top tension and to spend less time in the weight room because you got to realize that, in the American League, you know, you have the designated hitter. So the pitchers, you know, it's a hitting league. And the, the game lasts longer. So they're about three hours. My philosophy was I want to lift as heavy and as hard as we can. I don't want to do that before the game because if we do it the right way, you're probably going to be too tired, to, you know, to swing properly and throw properly. Now, you couldn't. But in the pros, we know at the elite level, you know, that much makes a big difference sometimes of winning and losing. But let's do it after the game. So my team during those days, we lift the weights at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night after a game, after they've been out in the outfield and the infield for three hours. So I wanted to figure out what's the best way to do that, spend the least amount of time. So I ended up figuring out, well, we only spend about eight to 12 minutes every workout session taking one body part. So if we went in and did chest that day, it was probably a bench press and an inclined fly out the door. If it was backward, low pull, high pull, out the door. If it was arms, it was, you know, some 
curling, some tricep extension, out the door. And But we went as heavy as we could. And so through that, I thought, because of recovery, well, that makes sense anyway, because we want the muscle to feel maximum tension so that when that maximum tension hits somewhere else, then it's not, it's not a foreign feeling, right? It's something the muscle experiences. Because think about it. Has anybody pulled a muscle going 70%? I mean, no. And that's like I said, it, the old school view was at the time, well, we just go lighter weights and for more reps. And I say, these guys are playing every single day. They hit, throw, run, and stretch every single day. The last thing they need is more volume because we know volume per- creates fatigue and fatigue is definitely a cause of injury. Well, we don't go very heavy. I say, so you're doing a lot of reps, but you don't use enough weight to even cause anything to happen. So why are you doing anything at all? You're not, you're not getting stronger, not heavy enough. You're not getting bigger. If, let's say you want to get guys, but you're not getting bigger because it's not heavy enough. So what are you doing? You know, so I think go the other way. We were doing sets of one, twos, and threes. You know, that's what we were doing. Load that some bitch up and go. You know, that's kind of that's what I wanted to happen. So I kind of took that, I took that philosophy back into the, co- into the into the college scene, and with my other athletes on the outside that I was working on. We get in season. You know, the, the way you you can't maintain strength unless you use strength level loads. So if you're gaining strength with loads from 85 and above, you're not going to maintain that by going 80 and below. You got to be up there. Now, you can't train as hard as much. So instead of doing 90 for three or four, you maybe do four sets of one, three sets of one. But it's got to feel something heavy. My philosophy was to go about 90% every four or five weeks and then back off. And of course, it was kind of an undulating sort of thing. But we never, I rarely get below 80% during in season because I want that muscle to feel that tension. And, you know, we place it in the right place. But that's, that's really my injury management program, is keeping the loads heavy enough so that the tension on the muscle is there. Here's the other thing that helps you, too. When you start going heavy loads and low volume, you don't get sore. You know, you just don't get sore. Got to keep training now. Be consistent. But you don't get sore like you do when you're doing sets of 12 or you feel, you know, after a, set, a couple, three sets of 12 of bench press, you can't move up here. Well, that's the last thing I need to do for anybody swimming or throwing or hitting a ball. Um, and... Uh, so you have shorter workouts, you have less soreness, um, and in the end, you know, your body doesn't have to learn any other thing than, than the constant contraction. In other words, baseball is a perfect example, maybe not as the same as some sports, but there's some instances where if you're a left fielder, you may stand out there for two hours and not run at all. All of a sudden, the ball gets hit in the gap and you got to go for a sprint, right? Well, when you're doing 85 and above, you're not warming up with 85% to get to the last rep. You've got to tense up now, even though you might be able to squeeze four or five out of that, right? But with a set of 12, the last rep's going to be hard on 12, but the first five or six aren't. Well, unfortunately, when you go to sprint in the gap, you don't get to go stretch and warm up and do a ballistic, you know, active warm up to go get that ball. You've got to go now. And the only thing that teaches that is rapid contraction by heavier loads. So your muscle has some memory there, too. That also keeps from getting. That's great. That's great. I um, sometimes I think we need to change our names from uh, strength and conditioning coaches to uh, to stress stress management coaches or uh, st- stress. Wow! Cycle. Hold on. Let me write that down. 
because it's it's just uh, how you apply stress and how do you get people to adapt to it and and uh, what uh, what are they getting stressed with now and then and are we preparing them for it? And if you're not preparing them for it, maybe you need to change your tack. Um, That's a great call. Stress management, mate. That's um, that was good. That was, that was great. I I really like that, um, especially for baseball and obviously really some of the cricket in Australia. But um, yeah, mate, heaps, yeah great uh, great philosophy. Um, well, if you're looking at rugby, for instance, right? You know, you're running all day long for sure. But but when the ball gets kicked out, that wing way out there, he's just kind of jogging around, and all of a sudden he's got to go, right? When that ball gets thrown out there. So there's another example of you got to go right away. Now he's warm already, but just because you're warm doesn't mean you're ready for max tension. And if you've already experienced that through leg curls or deadlifts or squatting, then you got a better chance of, of having healthier legs throughout the year. No, I love it. I love it. It's great, Bob. It really is. It really is. Hey, um, so we're gonna we we chatted about some awesome stuff. I have really enjoyed this talk. Um, good. Me too. It's been a blast. We we've got some quick fire uh, questions. Maybe we've already talked about them in the discussion. And go ahead. I'm ready for it, mate. All all I want you to do is like imagine you're on a um, psychologist's couch or something like that, and you get you get right. handed one of those ink blots, and yeah. so what, what do you see here? What do you see here? Um, so it's like the first thing that pops into your brain. Um, okay. And so I'll hit you with like three or four and then uh, and we'll sure. go with them. Whatever you want. Number one, what's the best lesson you've been taught or learned on the job? Be professional. Carry yourself and lead the way for how you want people to act in there and your staff. You know, you got to set, that's called the deck, right? The deck is an important place. Um, you think about an aircraft carrier. When people talk about the deck, that's where that's where people get get serious, right? When you're outside, be professional, carry yourself, dress the right way, talk to people the right way. Um, I think when when you start there, it gives you discipline and action. And once you have discipline, you definitely have organization. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah, very valuable. The discipline and the organization, hundred percent. Mate, what's one thing you've got from a seminar or lecture, something you've been to, a conference, wherever, um, and you've gone, oh, my God, I can apply this immediately. I'm going to use this tomorrow. Uh, I would say if it was anything, it was just science. You know, I spent a lot of time when I was younger sitting in on the science discussions, just the way these guys know, you know, have the brilliance of all this, this knowledge and the application of it. I mean, I really... I've really used my education in the science every day of my career. And so I, I can't think of any one thing other than to say the most important thing you'll learn will be the science, you know, of, of the why behind it. And I think that the science is already out there. And people say, well, you know, the weight room's ahead of science usually, you know, it's happening in there. I'm going to say, I don't really totally agree with that. I mean, that exactly has not been scientifically researched, but the principles and science behind that probably has. So example, you know, uh, we call it accommodative resistance or, or, or progressive overload. I mean, that was Nautilus 30 years ago, right? And all of a sudden we got chains and bands and we think that's a, that's a you know, a uh, really great thing. And it is, it's nothing new. That's, that's been allowed for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Mate, this is, this is, I love asking this question actually. Um, it's like a, it's like a, a, a coaches get together after a competition or something, you're having a beer and like you tell stories about uh, like past training exploits or game exploits. And normally the stories get a bit bigger and a bit more uh, fantastical every year. But um, 
what's the best performance that springs to your mind to start within a game and to follow that up in training? If you just go, whoa, that took my breath away. Type example. So, so say it one more time because you kind of froze up there. Are you saying that what's the best game performance I've seen or, you know, kind of display of athletic ability? Yeah, so two, two subparts to this question. One, game. Two, in training. And what is, like, what's those moments that you've just gone, wow, that took my breath away? Uh, well, I, so first of all, it has to be Ricky Henderson in baseball. I don't know if anybody knows Ricky Henderson. He's a Hall of Fame player, stole the most bases. I think he's hit the most leadoff home runs and scored the most runs in baseball history. Um, he asked me to get his bat. So he had a day off and he was usually our left fielder and that uh, would lead off hitter. So La Russa gave him the day off, which meant he could show up whenever he wanted to, as long as he was ready for the game. Tony was good about that with the older guy. But he said, I'm going to need you to DH. I'm just not going to put you in the field. He said, okay. So the game's getting ready to start. We're down in the field. I've warmed everybody up, you know, and, you know, we're, we're starting to go. So we've already been on the field, got our three outs. Ricky's not downstairs yet. He's going to lead off the game. So Tony says to me, where's, where's Rico? I said, I don't know. He said, well, go find him. Like, okay. So I go running upstairs, right? See where he is. Looking around for him. I can't stand. Now he has these Mizuno spikes, specially made baseball shoes that are basically track shoes with baseball nobody's in the room nobody's in the locker room they call it the clubhouse in baseball i go into the bathroom see if he's in there i bend down to look and there's the spikes in the stall i say rico he's like yeah i said you're leading off the inning he said when i said now he's like oh my god go downstairs and get my bats Give my bats and take them downstairs and take my Oakleys down there with you. I'll be down there in a minute. I go downstairs and all of a sudden, you know, so the pitchers are warming up and getting ready. Teams are changing on the field. Still no Ricky. I go looking up and here comes Ricky flying down the stairs, buckling up his pants, flying down the stairs. No warm up. Hasn't done anything for the day. Hasn't taken batting practice. Hasn't stretched. Hasn't done anything. Looks at me and says, you have my bats. I said, yeah, I hand him three bats. He takes all three backs, checks them, takes this one, puts his helmet on, gets in the batter's box. Guys announces, leading off the inning, number can't remember, 35, Ricky Henderson. He takes the first pitch, whack, hits it 320 feet for a home run. Oh, wow. That's I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that as long as I live. That had done a damn thing, right? The other one was – in training, uh, I don't think it was training as much as it was, uh, yeah, well, I was testing. Natalie Williams, who was a volleyball player for us, who is now, I think she's in the WNBA Hall of Fame, was also, I think, player of the year in, in volleyball, collegiate volleyball. And I want to say, I got to look. She may have been player of the year, first time ever in collegiate history where she was player of the year in two sports in the same year. The first time we ever tested her. So she came in as a freshman that year. So, you know, in those days, there was no summer training. They just showed up and we started, you know, so they had two weeks of volleyball practice. And we did some, I think we did some circuiting at the time. Actually, did some Kaiser circuit. Now that I think about Randy Huntington. Did a Kaiser circuit because volleyball, the, the, our coach was one of the winningest coaches in volleyball history, right? And so he was very good, knew what he was doing. But the beginning of his training camp was very demanding physically. 
So I just want to make sure they had enough movement in there. So we just did a light little circuit on the side. Taught her how to squat throughout the year. And she played too, right? And we came back in the springtime to test her. So her first squat ever, right? Put a little weight on the bar, 50 kilos, 60, 70. Took her all the way up. Her first test ever was 140 kilos. She squatted, went down, came up kind of wobbly. And stood up and then looked at me and said, is that good? <laughs> and I said, good. <laughs> I, now, so at that point, we were talking about, like, what do you fear? I was fearful. This girl is so special. I'm fearful. Something's going to happen. So put it back. I never tested her again. There was no reason to test her. Now, I trained her off that max. and just kind of added what I needed to do. But she was, she was so good that I thought there's no reason ever to test her again. First time she's ever done <laughs> she's like what was it good yeah, yeah it was great it was great just put the bar down don't worry about I, it and i kind of like you know put my arms around her and kind of walked her in so that i knew I, you know i was thinking please let the bar fall on me if anything happens but don't let anything happen to her what a, and what a great person she was too just so fantastic uh, mate that's awesome mate, to be honest there's been some great stories today and uh look i've, I've really enjoyed it. i'm sure the people listening will enjoy it too I want to ask where where do people um, where we're going to wrap up? Where do people get more yep. information? Uh, the Twitter, the, the uh, yes, Twitter really. I mean, yeah. So um, I'm at uh, I'm at Coach underscore Alejo on Twitter. Um, I'm on just about every day. Um, I don't know what I am on. I think I'm on the same thing on Instagram, Facebook. You know, Bob Alejo. Nothing special. I don't I don't need any aliases or any fancy names. So. Uh, and then simplyfaster.com. I'm publishing a couple articles a month for them. Uh, and you can contact me anywhere you want there. But uh, I'm pretty active. And, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting out to Australia. And, and uh, you know, if things go right, I'll never come back. I'll never come back to the U.S. I'm staying there. I'm coaching there. Sunshine. Surf a little bit. Win some championships. Right. You, I you got that it. left. Sure. You've heard it here first. He'll, he'll never leave. He'll never that's leave. That's right. <laughs> Mate, that's awesome. So, um, Bob, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's, it's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful chat, and I've learned a heap and uh, been thoroughly entertained by uh, some of the stories. It's been, it's been wonderful. I appreciate this. This has been a great, uh, it's been a great evening for me and a great start of the day for you, I hope. Alright, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Bob Alejo. I really did. I, he was just incredibly gracious with his time and he gave us a wonderful insight into, into USA collegiate and, and major league baseball strength conditioning and, and how it all ties in and, and some of his insights over those 30 years and, and his development and what's changed was really fascinating to me. So look, if you want to find out more about Bob, he's, he's uh, the Director of Sports Science at Powerlift at, currently and Powerlift have their own website. Uh, he's written quite a few quite a few articles on Simply Fast. He's also on Twitter and puts up a load of great stuff on Twitter. Highly recommend you get on there and follow him on Twitter. He will also be out at the ASCA's International Conference on Applied Strength Conditioning in November in Sydney at Olympic Park. Look, you can't go wrong getting along to that conference. It's going to be a cracker. Um, and look, if, if you are involved with the ASCA, that's great. If you're not, please think about becoming a member. There's wonderful courses, wonderful journals, uh, the support you get for the for the value for money you get 
from what you put into the membership, fire outstrips, uh, fire outstrips what you put in. So, look, I'd, I'd get on board if you're not on board already. That's it from me. Uh, we'll be back here probably next month with another podcast. And uh, please, uh, please rate us five stars. Give us some feedback, who you want to listen to next. All that type of thing would be really appreciated. Okay, over and out.